Welcome to the recording of the Irish Times Book Club podcast. Um, my name is Martin Doyle, Books Editor of the Irish Times. And with me today is Adrian McKinty, author of the Sean Duffy series, among many other books. Um, the book that we've been focusing on this month is Rain Dogs, um, which won an Edgar Award, one of the, the biggest awards in crime fiction. It's a locked room mystery or a variation on it, set in Carrickfergus, um, where Adrian was born and grew up. Um, Adrian, you now live in Melbourne, and you could hardly get further away from, from the north. Um, is that deliberate, or how did that come about? Um, you, you actually um, can't get farther away from... Um, I've, I've figured it out. It's about 10,000 miles away. It's literally on the other side of the planet. If you were to drill through Belfast, you basically come out in um, where Melbourne is. Um, so literally, it's the farthest place you can be. No, that wasn't any desire to get away from the rain and the bad weather and um, uh, my mum's cooking. I'm sorry, Mum. I just thought I would say that. Um, no, it was... Uh, it was just an accident, really. We were living in Denver, Colorado, and um, we'd been there for eight years, and we'd got a wee bit um, weary of the Denver winters, um, because in Denver in winter, it starts to snow in September, and it stops snowing in April, and you just feel a wee bit besieged uh, by winter. And so I said to Leah, is there any job that you could possibly get where it's sunny? And then a job came up in Melbourne, and I immediately Googled um, Snowfall Melbourne. <laughs> and it hadn't snowed in Melbourne since 1983. And I said, that's the place for us. And so uh, we moved to uh, Melbourne. Does distance um, sharpen the eye? Um, does, like, you're writing in, say, 40 degrees Melbourne about rainy Belfast Carrickfergus. Um, and set in the 1980s. Um, does moving away from, from Ireland give you a sharper perspective on it? Well, um, it, it, it's very difficult to write when it's 40 degrees and sunny outside and everybody is just going to the beach to cool off. It's actually a bit of a nightmare. Um, so what I tend to do in those situations is I close the curtains and there's this thing I put on YouTube, it's the sound of rain falling on a tin shed, and I put that on in the background, and so I hear the rain, and I clunk up the air conditioning and turn a fan on, and if I can sort of imagine a wee bit, I can pretend that I am in Belfast. But you're right, though, um, and I take your point, um, there's so many Irish writers who somehow could only write in exile. You know, um, Joyce and Beckett, to be the, 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 the great abiding examples, um, and, and, and it's true, like when Becca would come home, we found it almost impossible to write anything um, because the atmosphere was, was, he felt like he was drowning. And similarly, Joyce, it was, it was only when he was freed up in, in Paris or in, or in Trieste um, that he had to get away to get that sense of perspective. So I, I think it's a fair observation, you know, um, that, you know, sometimes you need to get away, especially, it might be an Irish thing, you need to, to, to get away to, to get a, an Archimedean point perspective on, on the old country. Is it also the case though that your earliest memories are, are the most potent um, trove of um, sources for stories? Um, I think that's absolutely true. I mean when I came to write there's a Vladimir Nabokov autobiography called Speak Memory 
And um, he talks about when he went to write that book, and I, I think he's living in America at that stage, but he's writing about um, Tsarist Russia in you know, the 1914, 1915, 16 period. And he's saying that it was like turning on a, a tap and just the memories came flooding out, like not, not just memories, but images and smells and tastes and ideas and, and fragments of music and fragments of conversation. And that's what it was really like for me. I mean, I was writing books about everywhere else but Belfast, but when I came to write the Duffy series, um, it was really like a, just a tap had been turned on, especially of memory and food and, and, and tastes, and um, it was quite an extraordinary experience, really, and a very heady one, um, like, um, you know, I'd finished uh, like two or three hours writing, and it was sort of dazed and amazed and, um, you know, almost like I'd, I'd gone off to another world and come back down again, you know? Like, Duffy is a fascinating cre- creation, um, a Catholic or you see man. Like, he's also a creature of habit. Some of his habits um, aren't so healthy, like a pint of a vodka gimlet um, after yeah. a hard day's work. But one of his others is maybe more um, life-preserving, and that's checking under his car every time for a mercury tilt device. It's like a recording device in the book. Um, and then having read a passage where he forgot at one time to check under his car, and then just as he's about to go down an incline, he decides he better stop and check. And then I, I read an article that you wrote in the British Independent newspaper about an incident when you were growing up on which it was obviously based. Would you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I used to get a lift um, every day to school um, with this guy who was a major in the um, British Army, and they lived up the road from us, and um, me and my little brother used to get a lift with them, and um, he would drive us up to school. I think he worked up there, and so there was, a, there was an older boy, and, me, and he would sit in the front with his dad, and there was me and my little brother, and, um, and we would go to school together. Now, the Mercury Tilt Switch one was invented in the 1980s, and I think most people are familiar with the... I've seen some people shaking their heads. It's basically you would get um, an explosive device, and you'd put it under the car, and you get a vial of mercury, and um, it could sit under a policeman or a soldier or even a senior civil servant's car, and the soft targets, um, they could sit under a car for weeks or even months, and then eventually they'd get in the car and go for a drive, and eventually, because it's Ireland... You know, you'd hit a slope or a hill, and then the little vial of mercury would go down the, 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 the test tube, and it would go across the contact, and it would set off the explosive device and, and, and blow the car to smithereens. And I, if you remember the 80s, a lot of people were killed that way. A lot of people were killed that way. And um, so the police and soldiers said that you always had to look under your car for an explosive device, um, for a bomb. And... Um, so people did that, and this guy, every day, we'd come over his, to his house, and we'd wait in the living room, and he would go and look under his car, and then he'd say, it's all clear, lads, in you get, and so we'd get in the car, and we'd drive up to school, and Carrick Grammar School was at the top of this big hill, so that's the way we'd go to school. Now, that happened, I was about 11 or 12, and we started getting a lift with him, and then he would, every day we'd check under his car, except when he didn't. And um, when it was really, really raining or cold or it was snowy or frosty, it was just, ah, who cares? Come on, lads, let's go. (laughs) And I remember the first time that happened um, when it was, I think it was actually snowing. And um, we got in the car and we're we're driving up to school and uh, my little brother's in the back seat with me. And I looked at uh, Gareth and I, you know, I said, he didn't, he didn't check under the car today. Mm-hmm. And, and he had his walkman on, he was completely oblivious. And you know, the, the guy was in the, the front seat with his son, 
And I said, I'm the only one that seems to care about this. The <laughs> fact that he didn't walk in a car. And I said, Gareth, Gareth. He says, he didn't look under the car. There could be a bomb in the car. And he says, ah, there's no bomb. And he just kept his, his headphones on. And I remember we were driving along um, um, Kennedy Drive and we turned to the big hill to go up to the grammar school. And I'm getting a real panic attack, real sense of fear. A roller coaster moment. Yeah, it was an absolute nightmare moment. And I remember um, the downtown radio was on and um, it's that Dolly Parton song, Little Sparrow. Do you I mean, know that Dolly? It's tragic. If you've ever heard that song, it's one of the most tragic songs um, you'll ever hear in your life and I was just getting all weepy in the back seat and it's going on and, and I was especially annoying sitting next to my brother who was completely oblivious and I said I have to die and not only die but die next to this idiot you know who doesn't even know that his life is in his hands you know I have to die surrounded by these fools it's absolutely ridiculous and so Dolly Dolly Parton's Little Sparrows Clan and we're getting up to that big hill up at the golf course and of course there's no bomb and we we get to school and we get out of the car and I'm just sh- absolutely shaking absolutely shaking and um, and everyone you know it's nothing to them but it really made a big impression on me and when I came to write that scene but 30 years later I thought I'm going to do it exactly the way it was I'm going to put everything in the same I'm going to have the same emotions the same fear the same hill the same car everything I'm just going to put it all in and, and I'm even going to get Dolly Parton's Little Sparrow. And um, so I wrote to Dolly Parton. And, um, and I said, you know, I'm writing this novel called The Cold Cold Grind. It's going to be respectable. You're going to be um, proud to be associated with this um, book. And can I have permission to use a verse from Little Sparrow? And Dolly Parton's management company said, absolutely, that'll cost you $1,000. <laughs> and then I thought to myself... You know, I wonder if Duffy could have been listening to a Dolly Parton song that's in the public domain. And then I found this um, on the same album as Little Sparrow. There's also a traditional bluegrass song from the um, 1920s. And I thought, I think he was listening to that <laughs> instead. So I used the, exactly the same moment, but a different song. Authenticity, but not yes, the authenticity had to go out the window because yeah. there was no way I was paying Dolly a grand. You know? But in a sense, like you know, I grew up uh, just down the road, and some of my troubled memories would be sort of things like I remember there used to be the ad if there was incendiary devices, you know, in a particular town, all the key holders would be asked oh, yeah, to oh. go back. And I'm kind of thinking, okay, so there are probably bombs, and you want us to go back and root around yeah. on the shelves to you know identify these like crazy and stuff like the you know controlled parking zones where no one attended vehicles so like every car on the high street was a potential device whatever like was that one of the driving forces behind you setting um or making the duffy series to kind of explore the kind of that kind of surreal psychic terrain it it became that way but i was really reluctant to do anything about the troubles i mean i just i really didn't want to step into that minefield I'm not really interested in politics that much, and um, I wasn't really interested in that period. It's just that the story kind of grew organically, and it was, I was actually quite depressed when I realized that it was taking place in 1980s Belfast, because mm-hmm. I had this story, and I liked the way it begun, began, and I liked the character, and I was going, oh my God, but it's set during the Troubles. What a nightmare. You know? So it was actually really, really... Um, quite upset by that and I was very reluctantly dragged into writing about this milieu but then when it was about 50 or 60 pages in I realized 
well, this is gold. Mm. You know, this is absolutely fantastic. You know, you, you have to be searched to go into Belfast city centre. You know, there was the, the guys who would go into the buses looking for bombs. You know, they just walk up and down the, the buses. And there was the army and police everywhere. There was the helicopters, constant helicopters above. They had this Wessex helicopter that was always above the Falls Road in West Belfast. And I thought, well, that is really interesting. And, you know, I really sort of glamorized it and romanticized it in my own mind. Um, and it became to me like I was writing Blade Runner or something because of the rain and the helicopters and the soldiers and the fog and the bomb sites. And uh, it became a quite exciting story for me to do. And um, I ended up really enjoying it after being so reluctant to, to do it. Was it always going, was Sean Duffy always going to be a Catholic or you see him? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I knew I was going to put him in the house where I was literally born and grew up and I was going to put him in my street as well with all my neighbours in under fake names and, and I thought well what would annoy those neighbours the most well first of all he's got to be a Catholic and that's going to really really tick them off And this is, second of all he's got to be a policeman because they're not going to like that that he's um, a Catholic policeman so he's going to have authority over them so that that's going to that's going to tick them off and I thought third of all I've got to make him bohemian it's going to make him sort of this you know middle class guy bohemian he knows who the Velvet Underground are you know he's not listening to um, Val Dunican and um, and Jim Reeves you know he's or, or maybe he is ironically and um, so he's I'll make him bohemian I'll make him Catholic I'll make him a policeman and then the, the coup de grace is I'll make him from Derry because that'll just be the final <laughs> nail in the coffin they'll just piss them off that he's from from, you know, is, is this guy from Derry on their street? You is know? he from Derry? I thought he was from the Glens of Amsterdam. Yeah, his family lived up there, but he went to school in Derry, and he's got sort of a Derry accent, and which I really liked. Um, having him just have this sort of North Antrim Derry-ish accent with all these like Belfast people and he's always talking about how great Derry is and how he's confused by Belfast and I thought that's going to rub them the wrong way you know? <laughs> Did it also help though that you know from, from a sales pitch point of view the fact that he's a Catholic or you see a man that gives it a kind of a, an appeal like I'm thinking would a Protestant or you see a man have been as... Well, I, I never thought about that, but I did think there'll be more fracture lines and there'll be more friction. I think uh, there's going to just it's going to generate a lot more friction, and um, because you've got all these different clashes and identities, and because um, from the seals' point of view, everyone told me that the troubles was box office poison. Yeah. Like the uh, the publishers told me that, the agents told me that. You know, the film people, everybody just said, whatever you do, don't write about the troubles, don't write about Belfast, because those books do not sell. And if you think back to like 1997 or 1998, you know, you go to the, you go to Waterstones and you'd see the Scandin, well, early 2000s, you'd see the Scandinavian crime fiction section would be about 30 feet long. You know, you'd have like a separate section just for Copenhagen, yeah. you know, and um, the Swedish books were about 30 or 40 books. And then you'd look at, Belfast crime fiction and it was four inches there was a Colin Bateman novel there was an Owen McNamee novel yeah. and then there was um, Sil maybe Silver City and uh, maybe Odd Man Out you know would be and, yet, and yet there'd been say, say Harry's Game or whatever in the yeah, 70s or whatever had that's, been a that, big hit like there were a couple more like that yeah the Seymour had written um, a couple of novels and um, they had they'd been but by the 80s and 90s everyone was so sick, sick of, of it, it. Yeah. and so you know, people just told me it's box office poison. Don't do it. 
um, write about anywhere else. And um, did you have a vision of how you might do it differently that would kind of break down that kind of resistance? No, I didn't. I, I just I couldn't help myself. Mm. It was just like that's what the story was, and I just had to do it. And I thoroughly expected it not to be published at all. I mean, I just I wrote this book, and I thought, well, this is a book that's. I mean, it, it had got its own momentum, and there was a motor driving it, and I thought, well, I have to finish it. Mm-hmm. Well, what was the original kernel then that, that started you on a track well, the that, original, you want, that you didn't want to be on? Uh, it was, the original was an image. I mean, I just I had this image of, um, you know, it was Bobby Sands. I think it was Bobby Sands' funeral, um, and there was a riot. Um, or maybe it was the second Hunger Strikers funeral, Frankie Hughes' funeral, and there was a riot in West Belfast, and I imagine... Um, there's a bunch of coppers on a hill, maybe Divis Mountain or maybe the Knocker somewhere, and they're looking down on Belfast, and they see the um, rioters throwing petrol bombs, and, and um, uh, they're being fired plastic bullets back, and they're looking down on this image, and they're reflecting about how beautiful it is. Yeah. And because it's, it's, it's raining, and the rioters are, are on this side, and the police are on this side, and they're, the lines are coming together and clashing and separating, and they're thing it's like a ballet it's just this some beautiful image you make me think of vietnam and i love the smell of vietnam yeah exactly how it, it, it had that and um, I, mean, I had this there was um the book begins an arc of gasoline fire across the crescent moon and uh, which is my book but there's the thomas Inch- pynchon novel um uh, gravity's rainbow which begins with a screaming comes across the sky mm-hmm. and i loved that line so much i loved gravity's rainbow but i just loved that line so much it was, it was one of the lines that really just moved me about literature in general a screaming comes across the sky and it's all about the the v2 being fired from pina Muna in the netherlands and landing in london and you hear the screaming that comes across the sky after the v2 has landed mm-hmm. and so i wanted it i did a, a, a conscious um, deliberate homage to that line in um, an arc of gasoline far across the crescent moon and um, and then I did all these other images which just these beautiful images that came to me and I thought this is so lovely but I'm so sorry <laughs> that this is clearly Belfast and but, but you also have fun with it as well like you know like for example can you like rather me say it but you immediately have Duffy and his colleagues up on the hillside looking down at this but then one of them says Fenian Bastards or whatever and then what does Duffy say? Um, something that I'd love to see things from your point of view. Oh but yeah, I, I don't know if we can say this. On I the think you can. <laughs> and he said I'd love to see things from your point of view but I don't think I can get my head quite up, as far up my arse as, as I need to do that. You know? <laughs> and, um, and I think the guy, the thing I wanted to have with Duffy was that he was sarcastic and a bit mean and um, he can hold his own he can hold his own he doesn't suffer fools gladly and I thought to myself you would have to have that you know you would have to be you know you have to be tough as nails to survive in that sort of poisonous sectarian environment because back then you know there were Catholic policemen but there were only about 10-15% of the force was Catholic so 85% was Protestant and there were all some there were some real nutters as well some real sectarian nutters I was just thinking that, you know, he's, he's a whiskey peeler in the sense that, um, you know, he drinks a lot, whether it's vodka or, yeah. or scotch. But I was thinking, like, you're, I don't think anyway that you're as interested in him as a Catholic in terms of the theology or the kind of wrestling with yeah. you know, moral demons. Like, he's not, like, say, a Graham Greene character no. where the Catholicism is... Well, you know, well, 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 Graham's a convert, and all converts can be very boring about their um, <laughs> the zeal of their conviction. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always thought in those Graham Greene novels, he's just trying so hard. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> he's just go, yeah, Graham, we get it. You know, we absolutely get it. 
you left the Church of England and you've become a Catholic and you're so excited about it and you could have spent 300 pages talking about now you've got this new sense of guilt. And um, so I thought, you know, if you're a Catholic peeler it's, in, in Belfast, that, it's going to be something you grew up with and you, you're confirmed and it's your, your, your school and your background. It's not something you're going to be banging on about all the time. So you, you go know? to Mass once a year, whether you need to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and also the drinking, it's funny because when I get the American reviews in, they always say, oh my God, you know, he's such an alcoholic. You know, they're all such alcoholics. This is a damning indictment of um, alcoholism. And I thought, no, it isn't at all. It's just the way things were back then. Yeah. In the 1980s, you know, people are smoking Benson and Hedges and Woodbines. And I used to work in the civil service in Belfast. And everybody would slip out at one o'clock yeah. and, and try and get three pints in. Well, probably more drinking in Mad Men. Yeah, exactly. You know, you try and get three pints Guinnesses in between one and two, so the rest of the afternoon would just be very, very <laughs> mellow, you know? So just everybody was smoking and drinking all the time. And another thing I tried to do, there's, um, um, there's a Colin McCann um, novel called, a uh, selection of sort of stories called Transatlantic. Did you ever read that one? And um, it was a, it's an excellent book, and it won the National Book Award, and he's got this... Um, one of the stories is uh, Mitchell doing the peace process in Belfast and Mitchell, you know, he's, he's talking to Paisley, he's talking to Adams and Mitchell, and they said to him what's the worst thing about dealing with? And he says the worst thing about dealing with the Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland is the endless cups of tea. Uh, <laughs> and he says because every time you went to somebody's house, you know, you had to have tea and cake or wee biscuits and then you have to go to another. So you ended up having like nine cups of tea and biscuits a day and I thought I would love to do a book where um, you know the coppers are all drinking at lunchtime and then when they go to interview anybody you know they're having like five or six cups of tea every time so at the end of the day their bladders are exploding you know from all the Guinness and all the tea you know. Um, what about the real life characters that you introduce into, I think you take some from pleasure maybe, and having agency over people who well, have that's such terrible agency over, I think that's, over us that's, that, that's a brilliant observation. I mean, it is, it's a wee bit of agency, it's a wee bit of getting your own back on these horrendous bullies. Um, from the 1980s, you know, these people who were demons and monsters, and then you thought, well, you know, you, you, you survived, um, you know, this period, but you didn't know there were all these children like me and like, you know, my fellow crime writers, we were all listening to what you were saying, and now 30 years later, um, when you're dead... Um, we can put you in our stories and um, we have the last word mm -hmm. and um, that has been very very enjoyable um, us having the last word um, over over these people and our memories um, and our books will outlast their evil I mm -hmm. think um, uh, so it's th that has been a, a very very good thing getting our own back on these absolute monsters like one of the themes in Rain Dogs is um, abuse and it's kind of loosely based on Kinkora yeah that's right um, well, I, I, you know it's, it's funny about Kinkora because um, I tried to get the documents for that and um, there's that 30 years release on the Kinkora documents and they were not included in the 30 year packet after the event so um, that's still been hushed up by MI5, and we still don't know really what happened there. So that is absolutely fascinating. I mean, we still don't know the answers of what really went on. Like one of the, the 
awful characters in the book is Savile, Jimmy Savile, who you actually met? Yeah, I actually met Jimmy Savile. I actually met him twice. Um, I met him when he did the Radio 1 Roadshow. He came to Carrick Fergus and um, he was... I mean, obviously, I, I was just a little kid. I had no clue that he was, um, you know, an absolute psychopathic monster. Um, but um, we did find him very creepy. You know, he was very... I mean, there was something very odd wearing the, you know, the velour orange tracksuits and the jewellery and the cigar and the big sunglasses and the dyed platinum hair. He was a very, very odd guy. And I remember... Um, uh, so I had that encounter at the Radio 1 Roadshow and then later on I met him at University College London and he was just... Um, he was doing this charity event there at the bar and um, I remember um, a friend of mine who was one of the events managers went up to him and Savile just started screaming and yelling at him. He said, why haven't you provided a car for me? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he was going back to Leeds and he wanted a car that was going to drive him all the way back to Leeds that night. The guy said, well, we don't have the budget to, to have a, a limousine that will drive you back to Leeds. And Savile was screaming and yelling at this guy. And I just thought to myself, my God, he's kind of different when the cameras aren't on, you know, this, this guy. So then when, I, I have to say, when all the revelations come out, you know, I was as surprised as everybody else about that. And I had no inkling about that. But the idea that he was a sinister, dark presence with a, a, a whole hidden side to him was not a surprise. Mm-hmm. Because I had seen that um, close up a couple of times. And, um, you know, really... And, and, and everybody... There's a, there's a, everybody knew, I think, about some aspects of it. But obviously, obviously mm-hmm. not about the necrophilia and the, the, you know, the child abuse and all that stuff. You did a brilliant essay, um, which I'm going to publish in a couple of weeks in, in the Irish Times, about class and genre. Do you want to say a little bit about how you see crime writing as part of um, literature generally? Well, we were talking about a wee bit about this earlier. I mean, just when I was a, when I was a kid, um, literary fiction was considered to be um, not for the likes of us. It was considered to be, um, for, it, was about, it was a by and about upper middle class people. And um, especially if you grew up in United Kingdom, of which Northern Ireland obviously was a part, you would see all these Booker Prize winners, and they were very, very posh people. I mean, Salman Rushdie, for example, you know, who's this guy from India, but he did go to a very, very fancy boarding school. Yeah. And Martin Amis and Kingsley Amis, and um, you know, and even Iris, Iris Murdoch, who talked very posh. Yeah. Ishiguro. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Ishiguro, you know, another immigrant, but they talked super posh. They had gone to the right schools, and to to in the eighties, the bookers were really colorblind in a way, but they weren't class blind. Mm-hmm. You know, there was there was James Kelman, but that was about the only one out of all these novels that were came from a working class perspective. I mean, it was the one thing to be a working class person, but to actually have a working class <laughs> protagonist mm-hmm. was extremely rare. And um, so and that's not one of the things I noticed about Richard Flanagan when he won the, the, the Booker a couple of years ago. Um, with his, he's a Tasmanian working class boy from the forests of um, southwest Tasmania. But he made the protagonist in his novel an officer um, who's working on the Burma Railway. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought even when you are working class, you know, you still choose to have a, an upper middle class or an officer class protagonist. And so what was, what was so surprising about crime fiction was, especially when I got to read the novels of Jim Thompson, um, they were all about these working class, 
people, mm -hmm. you know, ordinary people who would have ordinary lives, you know, who were like, who were like me, who talked like me, who thought like me, you know, who, who were in my world. So I was so impressed by that. Wow, you're actually allowed to write about people I know and, and, and people from my class, but you have to do it through this vector of crime fiction. And um, and so that, but I found that I quite enjoyed that vector, mm -hmm. and I quite liked that world. And so I found that crime fiction was a really, really interesting genre, and in that it could be high and low, it could be violent or it could be non-violent. You know, it was a very, very flexible device for communicating a lot of serious ideas, but also a lot of fun and um, a lot of different characters as well. I think Brian Cliff, in his essay, uh, he's writing a book on, on crime fiction. He's a lecturer at Trinity, mm -hmm. and he made the point that you know it's not all just about crime. Like you know, for example, there's a scene um, in in one of your novels where you get the boat to to Liverpool, mm -hmm. and there's a sort of a window onto the the abortion trail, yeah, um, which is you know is not necessarily germane to a crime novel, but you're interested in, in society. Yeah, well, one of the things that you can do when you, you get to a certain degree of, um, when you're writing the novels and the novels are doing reasonably well, um, your editor gives you a lot more freedom mm -hmm. just to do whatever you want. And so I, and they said, can they just, I remember my editor said, can, can they just fly to Liverpool? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, that would be one sentence. Mm -hmm. But I really wanted them on that Liverpool boat because I remember that boat very, very well. Mm -hmm. um, the Belfast to Liverpool boat. And I thought, and I just want to have some real fun here. Um, you know, on that boat in the rain at night coming into Liverpool. And then when you got, got into Liverpool in the 80s, in the 90s, I don't know if it's still the case, but you go past that big modernist Liverpool cathedral and you'd have all the anti-abortion posters and you know horrific po posters of like you know aborted fetuses and stuff like that and, and people screaming at, at the women going to the the hospitals there because they'd all just got off the boat from belfast or dublin to go to um to, to to the abortion clinic so i really wanted to have that scene in the book because it was so fascinating mm -hmm. you know i, I really like that and um, he, he, in his essay he did he did notice i did cheat um, I never do flash forwards to the future ever because um, I just feel it's really, really cheating. Um, but I, I have cheated twice um, in the books, and one of the ones was the, the Sun about Hillsborough. And um, because uh, I am um, a big Liverpool fan, I was personally offended by the Sun's coverage of the Hillsborough disaster. I thought it was absolutely disgusting. And um, and so one of the things when Duffy's in Liverpool, he, he he has this observation: oh, everybody's selling the sun, but he has this weird out of body, you know, straight to the camera sequence. And he says, you know, a year from now, no one is going to find a copy of the sun anywhere in Liverpool mm -hmm. because of of um, of what happens. And the other sort of cheat out of body experience I had, where um, he's just he's just in the third book. He saves Mrs. Thatcher. It's very, very melodramatic and super fun for me. He saves Mel Mrs. Thatcher from the Brighton bombing. And um, I absolutely love that. And that's the one thing I wanted to do. I thought, wouldn't it be brilliant if he, because um, he hates Thatcher. He absolutely hates her. 
for ideological reasons and because the hunger strikes and everything I hate. And he ends up saving her life in the Brighton bombing. And I originally had that novel ending where Duffy's killed in the Brighton bombing. And because he's just some party guy, you know, they think maybe he did it. And so he dies. Um, I wanted the series to end where he dies disgraced and dishonored. Mm. And meanwhile, he saves the life of his nemesis. That's the most perfect, downbeat, miserable ending <laughs> that you can ever have. And I was just getting ready for the avalanche of hate letters. Um, but then my publishers talked me out of that. Um, beautiful oh, yeah. ending to the book. But anyway, there's this out-of-body moment where he sees Mrs. Thatcher and he says... Um, You'll die in a hotel, Maggie, but not this one. Yeah. Um, because, of course, she does. She dies in the Savoy um, Hotel. Does anybody know where? It, yeah, getting a few nods of the heads. She dies in the Savoy Hotel, um, but she doesn't die in the, in the Grand Hotel. What about that contrast, then, between, say, the, you know, the creative imperative and then the commercial one, where you, know, you have your own vision for uh, what the story arc is, but then your editor steps in and says... Actually, these books are selling, and you know there's life in yeah, the store yet. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's exactly what happened. The end of book three. I wanted. I had an idea for a trilogy arc, and I had a beautiful, beautiful ending with Duffy dead in the rubble of the Grand Hotel, and everybody thinks this mad Paddy bastard blew them up, and so he's disgraced and dishonored and buried in like Mozart in a pauper's grave. You know, nobody's at his funeral, and the rain's falling. And, uh, you know, it, it's such a beautiful ending. And I knew I would never get that chance to end the series again. And then when my editor read it, she called me at about 2.30 in the morning and said, no. And said, no. We're trying to make a living here. Yes. I said, we cannot do this. And she said, you know, Adrian, you've written, I'd written about 10 or 11 novels by that stage. And, and she said, you know, Adrian, you've been, she, you know, basically... I think she was crying, and she said, um, Adrian, you know, it's been a hard sell with your books, you know, and you know, I've been getting great, I mean, I've always been blessed my whole career, I've been getting good reviews, and she says, you've gotten good critical reviews, and you've won a few rewards, but the one thing that has never happened is anybody has ever bought your books, and, and I said, and now people are finally buying your books, you know, after 10 years in this, and... Um, you want to kill your protagonist at the end of this series? And so I thought about it, and I thought, well, maybe she has a point. But I said, but I'm definitely going to kill him in the next book. Mm-hmm. And they said, that's fine. And because I had another brilliant idea um, for the ending of the ending of Gun Street Girl, um, which is also a true story. Um, in 1990, I think, um, they took all the top MI5 and Special Branch cops who were looking at IRA intelligence, and they put them on this um, Chinook helicopter, and they flew them into a a mountain in the Mullican Tower. And I thought to myself, brilliant. Duffy's on that helicopter, and um, he's going to be dead, and that's the end. So that's how I killed um, in the fourth book. And um, And again, there was a rerun. Again, this phone call. I think it was like half four that morning. What the hell are you thinking? You can't yeah. kill him. It's never going to happen. We just have to wrap here, up here for the next event. But I just wanted to... It's interesting because the Brighton Bomb thing. Like, Patrick McGee, the Brighton Bomber, actually did his PhD whilst in prison on Troubles Fiction, on mm-hmm. the portrayal of Republicans in, in Troubles Fiction. So it'll be interesting to maybe get his perspective on yeah, I, um, a protagonist from the other side of the, the conflict. Yeah, I'll have to find out. Because it's very, very interesting in the... In, in fiction and in Hollywood, you know, there was always this idea of the romantic IRA guy, you know, and there was 
the, the, the betrayals of the cops was always a bit more wooden and a bit more stereotypical. I mean, I, th I thought that the, the, the IRA and the NLA, they got a little bit better deal. You know, they got better casting, yeah. you know, and um, whereas the coppers were always these slab-faced older guys, you know. There's so, only one I was just thinking on the way up, Force of Duty. I don't know if you saw that as a BBC Northern Ireland screenplay, um, which had Donald McCann, and it possibly had a number, I can't remember. But it was a, a sympathetic portrayal of two... Um, I think Catholic or UC men as well, which right. will be worth checking out. But listen, Adrian, we'll have to wrap it up for now. Um, so thank you very much. Um, thanks to everybody for coming. And thank you to the organisers of the festival for hosting us here. Um, so we've been listening to um, myself, Martin Doyle, the books editor of the Irish Times, talking to Adrian McKinty about his excellent crime series and the latest Rain Dogs. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.